Well, good morning again, everyone. If you don't know who I am, my name is Pastor Matt, and uh, it's my privilege to be with you all this morning. We're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 5. If you are new with us this morning, um, we've been walking through what is called the Gospel of John. The Gospels are really just four biographies of Jesus. They tell the life story of the person of Jesus. We've been walking through this particular biography, the Gospel according to John, uh, for the last couple of months. And uh, this is uh, this particular biography, we're told, was written uh, so that we might believe. John tells us very clearly at the end of his Gospel that it was written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we might have life in his name. And so this gospel, including this story, was written so that you and I might believe, and by believing, have life through the name of Jesus Christ. And as we've been walking through the gospel of John, we've seen that there has been um, a, a ratcheting up, if you will, of, of conflict a little bit between the, the Jews in Jerusalem and between Jesus himself. We saw that with, uh, in John 2 with the temple cleansing, that in, in that Jesus cleansed the temple. And we're going to see in this passage that um, Jesus throws another shot across the bow. Um, But uh, most importantly, this passage is given to us to see how Jesus' interaction with a cripple um, actually gives life and how Jesus interacts with sinners. So if you'll look with me in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, I'm going to read down through 17. It says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, And knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So Jesus said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Father in heaven, one more time, as we come before your word, we pray that you would use it to reform us, to mold us, to make us more into the image of your son. 
Father, would you use it to give us faith, to help us to believe in Christ, and that by believing we might have life? Father, would you help us to go from this place and to sin no more? It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? It's almost such an obvious question that it almost doesn't deserve an answer. On the one hand, the man was there, and he'd been lying there for 38 years. His body had atrophied. He was there in his own stench. He was destitute, penniless. He didn't have a penny to his name, and he knew no one who would want to be his friend. No one who could bring him down to the pool to dip him in that he might be healed. Of course he wanted to be healed. And of course behind him, behind this physical need was spiritual need because he was engaged in sin that was habitual and perpetual and unrepentant. Do you want to be healed? Maybe you're here this morning and you've come into this building with sin that you are harboring. Maybe guilt is weighing you down to the floor. And maybe you're here and you're saying, that's almost such an obvious question, it doesn't deserve an answer. Of course I want to be healed. Of course I want to be healed. I just don't know if I can be. I have no friends to lift me up, no friends to encourage me, to take me down to the healing waters. Yes, I want to be healed. The passage that we're talking about today is um, a story that is a bit of an enigma that takes a lot of thoughtfulness to to unpack, and I'm going to do my best. And the way that we're going to do that this morning is we're going to talk about the story, we're going to talk about the cripple, And we're going to talk about the Savior, the story, the cripple, and the Savior, the story, the cripple, and the Savior. This story unfolds in three scenes. The first scene is the interaction between Jesus and the cripple, the first interaction between Jesus and the cripple. And Jesus comes up to Jerusalem, even though Jerusalem is south of where Jesus was, it's higher in elevation. So he goes up to Jerusalem around the time of a feast of the Jews. We're not sure, but... Most people would say it's probably the Passover festival. That was the only festival that Jews were absolutely really encouraged to come to Jerusalem for, although they were, uh, to a lesser degree, encouraged to come to Jerusalem for the other festivals. And and Jesus came through the Sheep Gate, which is where they would bring livestock into the city so that it could go to the temple. It was the shortest gate. it It was the gate that had the shortest distance to the temple. And by the Sheep Gate, there was a, a big pool called Bethesda. Uh, and it, this pool, all around it, surrounding it, were a multitude of, of people that were destitute, probably homeless, that didn't have many friends, that didn't have many, much community, that had no one else around them. They were people who were, who were blind and, and lamed and, and paralyzed. And um, in this, around this pool, there was a tradition, that, a Jewish tradition, that an angel would come down from heaven to this particular pool, and it would stir the waters, and the first person who dipped into the waters would be healed. 
And so all around this pool were, were many of these people who didn't have another hope and who were particularly discouraged and maybe a tad bit superstitious. And the, the subject of our story, one of the subjects of our story, that, that the cripple was one of these, that he was next to the pool for 38 years, we're told. And Jesus comes along, and Jesus, knowing that he'd been there for a long time, asks him, do you want to be healed? Asks him what might seem to be a very obvious question. Do you want to be healed? And the man, I, I'm, I think he... I think he wants to know, I think this man thinks, why does he want to know this? Does he, is he asking why I haven't been down to the pool yet? And so he says, well, I just don't have anybody to take me down to the pool to dip me in. It's, he almost doesn't even know how to answer Jesus. And Jesus, understanding he's not quite getting it, just says, stand up, take up your mat and walk. And at once, the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. That's the close of the first scene. The second scene uh, starts out with this background detail. We find out that the day was Sabbath. Now, we're going to talk more about some of the, the implications for the fact that this was Sabbath and Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Next week, that's very integral for the second part of John chapter 5. But for now, all, all that's necessary to say is that it is a that the Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments. And, and the Jews of this day were very conscientious about not breaking that particular one of the Ten Commandments. And so in order to keep themselves from violating this commandment, they would put up what we might call hedges around this commandment. So they would stack up all these other laws to keep themselves from breaking this. And so, um, and that was how they would do it. They, they would say, we don't, we want to get as close, we want to get as far away from possible as breaking the commandment about Sabbath as possible. So one of the one of the commands that they would for just for example one of the ways that they determine this is they, they ask well is it is it a sin to spit into the dirt on Sabbath and the answer was well if it rolls over twice then you're technically tilling a field so yes that's a true that's a true story I'm not making that up and so they these these conscientious Sabbath keepers see a man carrying his mat and they say it is Sabbath. Don't you know you're not supposed to be doing that on Sabbath? That's not lawful. And the man says, well, I don't know who you people are, but the man who healed me, that man, that man, that one told me to take up my bed and walk. And the Jews, it says they press him a little bit. Said, who who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And of course, he doesn't know. That's how the third scene closes. In verse 13, because Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. And you can imagine Jerusalem at festival time. It's teeming with crowds of people and the man cannot find Jesus. Now, afterwards, after this event, Jesus finds him in the temple. He's gone to the temple to present himself to the priests because that's what you do after you've been healed from a, from a ritual uncleanness. And he says to him, see you're well, sin no more sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you and jesus is encouraging him and admonishing admonishing him not to sin and it seemed if if the story would have ended right here it would be a much happier story but we find out in verse 15 that the man went away and told the jews that it was jesus who had healed him so this man goes and he 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 tells the the jewish leadership 
Um, that's what it means by the Jews of the, of the temple, that it was Jesus who had healed him. And we find out that this is why the, the Jewish leadership of the temple of Jerusalem was persecuting Jesus, because Jesus had done these things on the Sabbath. And we'll see more verse 17 down through much of the rest of the chapter next week about the implications of Jesus healing on the Sabbath and all that. But I want to spend some time exploring this character of the cripple. I think he's such a fascinating character. And I want to thank um, those of you who humored me by talking talking about uh, him with me this week, especially, not only us, but especially our small group. And our small group spent a whole, a whole night this week uh, trying to figure out this character. Who is the cripple? What is he like? If you read commentaries, which are just people trying to help us understand the Bible more, not a replacement for Scripture, but they can be a helpful tool, about half the commentaries will tell you this was a, this was a good guy. And about half will tell you that he's not a good guy. So you read the, you read the commentaries, you think, oh, it does, sound, it does sound like a good guy. And then you read the others and you think, ah, maybe not. They both sound like they have good things. So let me give you some things that would t- tell us this, this, this is a positive a positive person. On the one hand, Jesus comes to him and heals him. Now, when we hear healing, we often think, oh, physical, you know, we're talking about physical healing, that to be healed of disease, that, that clearly, but biblically speaking, um, a bigger thing that we need to be healed from is our, our sin. And in fact, in the gospel, sometimes it tells us that Jesus does a physical healing to indicate that he heals from sin. So sometimes the physical healings that Jesus does in the Gospels, while they're historical, actual events, are signs that Jesus can forgive sins and that Jesus can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we see in Matthew 8, for example, Matthew 8, 16 through 17, it says this, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So there's, a he- there's this healing that Jesus does. And then it connects this to the promise of forgiveness in Isaiah. He says this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. We see this language of healing, of healing helping us understand what forgiveness looks like, as healing is a picture of forgiveness throughout the Old Testament. So for example, in Psalm 103, which we read in our call to worship, it says this about the Lord who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Those are paralleled with one another. Again, in Psalm 107, 20, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. In Isaiah 19, 22, it says the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 57, 18 through 19 says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Jeremiah 3, 22, return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for, we, for you are the Lord our God. Jeremiah 17, 14, heal me and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Hosea 6, 1, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. And Hosea 14, 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. 
And so when we look in the when we look in the Old Testament for the language of healing, language of healing is often attached to forgiveness of sins and to cleansing from all unrighteousness. And that is what I believe this passage, that's the best understanding I have of this passage, that Jesus heals this man to indicate that he can forgive sins. So that's the first thing that looks like it's a positive story about this man, that he seems to be healed from his sins. The second thing is that this man goes, goes through a change of identity. He goes through a change of identity. So in verses 3, or I'm sorry, verses 5 and 7, he's called an invalid and one who has sickness or one who is sick. But in verses 10 and again in verse 13, he's called the man who had been healed. The Jew said to the man who had been healed. And again in verse 13, the man who had been healed. It's almost like he's no longer identified by his sickness. He's no longer identified by his sin. He's no longer identified by the things that he's done in the past, but now he's identified by what Jesus has done for him, by who Jesus has transformed him to be. That when he meets Jesus, he gets a change of identity. We also see that this man seems like he obeys Jesus. Jesus says, get up, take up your mat, and take up your mat and walk. He says, okay. He gets up, he takes up his mat and walks. Now that all seems pretty positive, I think. Uh, seems like this man, that, that there's a, a redemption that happens with this man. But then there's, some, there, there's some, just some nagging things about this passage, some nagging things about this character. So after all of this, Jesus comes to him and says, sin no more. And that word sin, we've talked about this a little bit here, is in the present tense. John loves the present tense. If you are a grammar person, it should drive you nuts. But John loves the present tense. He loves to talk in the present tense. And when he's talking to this person, he says, sin no more, as in the sin is a progressive, ongoing, habitual, regular occurrence in this person's life. He comes to him and says, cut it out. Turn away from your sin. Turn back from your deeds of iniquity. Repent. That's what he's saying. He's telling him, and so if he's saying that to the man, it seems like this man still has regular, habitual, serious sin in his life even after he's been saved. Further, in verse 15, he goes away and tells the Jews who had healed him. That might not seem like a big idea, but you have to look at this passage in the larger context of John. You see, later in John's gospel, there's a very similar story about how Jesus heals a man who's been born blind. And there's a couple connections to that. One of this is in the passage with uh, the man who's been born blind, and Jesus comes and he heals him. And Jesus disappears, and the man born blind is questioned by the Jewish leadership, just like this man is here. And the man picks a fight with the Jewish leadership. They're, they're saying, well, are you his disciples? Like, why do you want to know? Do you want to be his disciple? I, I love it. And, and they cast him out of the temple. And afterwards, Jesus appears to him, just like he does with the cripple here. And he reveals himself to the, the, the man born blind. And the man born blind, instead of going and telling the Jews, worships him. Uh, D.A. Carson, who's um, a New Testament scholar, if you're aware of the Gospel Coalition, one of the founders of the Gospel Coalition, he's written one of the best books on the Gospel of John, says this. The man defends himself by blaming the one who told him to do it. It is doubtful interpretation that understands the man to be defending Jesus as if he were saying that anyone with the authority heals certainly has the authority to interpret the law authoritatively. 
He is simply ducking the authorities. He will shortly go so far as to try to ingratiate himself with them in verse 15. So, is this man redeemed? Or is he still stuck in his sins? And as near as I can interpret it, the best I understand the story, the answer is yes. That this is a man who I take to be genuinely redeemed. Jesus does not change your identity if you're not saved. Jesus comes and he heals him. He gives him a new status. He makes him new. He comes to him knowing that he's sinful and redeems him. It implies forgiveness of sin. There's, it seems like there's a, he, he genuinely comes to him and redeems him. And yet, even for all that, he still is someone who has serious, habitual struggles. Someone who's still caught up in his old way of life and who hasn't quite conquered it yet and who even betrays Jesus. And in that, he holds up a mirror to us. Because how many of us are the same way? How many of us, we've been genuinely redeemed, we've accepted Christ, we've come into his presence, we've asked for forgiveness, and the very next chance that we get... We betray him. This is not a, a simple story, but it's in the complexity of the story that I find hope and comfort. Because if Jesus would heal this man who he knew was going to go and betray him, that means that he can heal us. So the question is why would he do that? Why would he heal this man who he, he knows who he is? He knows all that it is about that he's going to do. Why is, why is Jesus hell-bent on rescuing and redeeming this sinner? And I think that takes us to our, our third point, the Savior. As, um, as Sophie was very patiently reminding us in our small group this week, this story is about Jesus. It's almost intuitive. It's that this is not a story so much about the cripple as about Jesus. And so what does this story about Jesus redeeming this man tell us about him? It tells us a couple of things. Number one, Jesus is intentional and purposeful. Jesus is intentional and purposeful. That Jesus is is interacting with this. He's, a, he's like a chess player. He's several steps ahead. He knows what he's doing. It's not like Jesus doesn't know what day of the week it is. He knows what, he knows what he's doing. He knows, he knows exactly who's going to see him walking. Why do you think Jesus went into the sheep gate, the closest gate of the city to the temple? Jesus knows that the, that the, the religious elite of his day are going to see this and blow a gasket. He knows this is coming. It's very purposeful and intentional that Jesus has a purpose. And in his providence, he has arranged the suffering of this man to bring greater glory to him and to the Father. Jesus is intentional and purposeful. That's the first thing that we can learn from, him, from this story. Number two, verse six is very clear that Jesus knows all about this man before he ever meets him. 
It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. And if Jesus knew that he'd been there a long time, he knew exactly who he was. That there was no hiding from him, that Jesus knew exactly who this person was. He knew all of his deepest and darkest secrets. He knows all about him. There's no hiding from him. And yet Jesus comes and he heals him anyways. Jesus comes and he extends forgiveness to him anyways. Jesus, knowing that he would betray him, comes and forgives him anyways. What does that say about him? What does that say about Jesus, that he would save somebody who he knew would betray him? I love the story of the salvation of Matthew and, and the, the, the book of Matthew in the New Testament. In the book of Matthew, again, it's in one of these other biographies. Um, Matthew almost gives us a little bit of a, a cameo of himself and how he knew Jesus. And Matthew used to be a tax collector. And Jesus was walking through his town one day and said to Matthew as he's sitting there in the tax booth, come and follow me. And so he rises and he follows him. And Matthew, he's just so amazed that Jesus would forgive someone like him and he would welcome someone like him in. He invites all of his friends. And he, these are people who are sketchy and they're, they're people who are kind of difficult and they're people who, are, who are, are kind of grimy. And the Pharisees see this and they say to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' response is this. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus comes to this man in spite of his sin to rescue him from his sin. And even knowing that by coming to call him to sanctification, to call him to repentance, this man is going to go and betray him. In verse 15, he wants him to be holy so much that he does it anyways. In verse 15, or verse 14, when he says, sin no more. Jesus cares about this man so much that he is willing to take the, the betrayal that's coming to get this man to step out of his sinfulness and to step into holiness. Why does Jesus save this man? Why does he forgive him? Why does he call him to sanctification? Why does he do this? Well, we might say, because we've already read John 3.16 by this point, because God loves him. You say, well, why does God love him? Doesn't seem like a very lovely person. Doesn't seem like someone who... It doesn't seem like somebody who there's much to, to be got. Why does he love him? Why does he forgive him? And I think the simplest answer comes from the first chapter of John, where it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Why does Jesus save this man? Because he wants to. Because he wants to. 
There's a thousand other cripples and invalids at this pool, and Jesus saves him. Not because he's particularly worthy, not because Jesus just really needs to get this draft pick. Jesus saves him because he wants to. Why does Jesus save us? Broken, invalid, sinners. Because he wants to. Because Jesus, in his kindness, in his grace, in his mercy, has decided to. Because he loves us. Because he wants to. Dear friends, This, if this story holds up a mirror for us of what we are like, even after we've been redeemed, the story also holds up a mirror for us of how our Savior comes to us again and again and says, do you want to be healed? Go and sin no more. So as we turn to apply this to our lives, a handful of things from this passage that I pray and I hope will be helpful. The first is this. Jesus knew who you were when he bought you at the price of his own blood. He's not confused about that. He doesn't have buyer's remorse. He's not taken aback. When Jesus bought you at the price of his blood, when he died on the cross for your sins, he wasn't saying, well, I really hope this will work. No, he knew who we were. He knew who we were, and he purchased us anyways. And just like he's, number two, and just like he came to this man, he comes to us and says, do you want to be healed? Maybe you're here today and you've come into this room and you are carrying a burden of guilt and of shame, of brokenness that you feel you cannot bear for one minute more. And Jesus comes to you and says, do you want to be healed? Maybe you're here and you've been a Christian for a long time and you're still wrestling and struggling with this sin and you're harboring it and Jesus comes to you and says, do you want to be healed? Or maybe you're here and you've never heard that call of Christ before. You've never heard him say, get up, take up your mat and walk. But when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? The answer is almost too obvious to answer. One of the reformers, a man named Johannes Ecclampadius, don't ask me to say that again, says this, Christ comes to us invalids. And he asks whether we want to be made well. There are many who prefer to remain in their sickness. Nevertheless, Christ, having suffered for all, offers himself for our salvation. Do not remain in your sickness. Maybe you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ. I'd encourage you to do that now. It's very simple. All you do is you pray to Christ and you say, Christ, take all of me because I want all of you. If you'll give me all of me, all of your righteousness, all of your holiness, all of your forgiveness, I I will take all of you. If you want to know what that is like, I'd love to talk with you about that after the service. It's number two. Number, Number three. If you are in Christ, 
You are no longer who you once were. Just like this man has undergone a change in identity. Just like this man is no longer identified by his old way of life. So you and I, when we meet Jesus, when we've responded yes to him, when we've called out and received him, we are no longer who we once were. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says it later in the New Testament in this way. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, not are, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you have met Christ and you have heard his calling to you and you've picked up your mat and walked, you are no longer that invalid by the pool. You are the one who is now healed. When you and I meet Christ, we go through a change of identity. We're no longer who we once were, but we are who we are by the grace of God. Number four. Some of you maybe need to hear this today. Therefore, sin no more. Don't keep holding on to that sin that, needed, that caused you to need salvation in the first place. Sin no more. Don't keep engaging in that sin. Don't keep doing that thing that you're hiding in your heart. Don't keep saying those things that you shouldn't say. Don't keep going to that place you know you shouldn't go. Sin no more. If Jesus loves us enough to forgive us of our sins, he also loves us enough to confront us of the sins that needed forgiveness in the first place. If Jesus, if Jesus only forgave us of our sins and he didn't call us to holiness, if Jesus forgave us of our sins and he left us to our own devices, if Jesus forgave us of our sins, if he was only our Savior and not our Lord, that wouldn't be good for us That would be enabling us. Jesus is interested in our sanctification, in our growth in holiness, in our walking out of the way of life. And notice how Jesus motivates this man to holiness in verse 14. He says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. That God's discipline might not come upon you. And you say, I thought this man was redeemed. God loves us enough to discipline us, to grow us out of our sin. The book of Hebrews says it this way. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. If you do not want to be disciplined, then don't keep sinning. Don't keep walking in the way that you used to walk. Don't keep engaging in the thing that you used to engage in. Don't keep going to that place where you know trouble resides. And yet I say this knowing that the very first chance that we get, the very first chance that we get, we will turn our back on God and betray him. Um, at, our, at our house, um, the time out, the the discipline of choice for our son is time out, okay. And so, to to get out of time out, he my son has to say sorry. Okay, he does not negotiate with terrorists, so this often takes a long time. But eventually, we are able to wear him down. And he says, sorry. And we say, I forgive you. Now go and sin no more. I say that as part of the liturgy of our home. And almost immediately, he goes back to tormenting the dog. He goes back to that corner. We just told him, get out of the corner. Don't put stuff in the electric socket. That doesn't remove my love for him. That doesn't remove my care for him. That doesn't remove me seeking after his heart and coming to him again and again and getting that word out of him. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And so if you're here and you think, I, I know that I've, God, I've had a lot of conversations about this and I keep going back to this sin, Scripture says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, Because of the nature of this passage, I, I feel the need to... I feel the need to tease out a little bit the relationship between our, our sin and suffering. This man's sin, to some degree, we're not exactly 100, we don't know, have enough details to be 100% sure about all of it, but to some degree, it seems like this man's sin led to suffering in his life. Um, and I think that we need to be willing to say, oftentimes sin in our lives leads to suffering. And if the sin in our life does not lead to suffering, oftentimes sin in our life exacerbates suffering. Nevertheless, um, we also need to pair this passage with John 9, as I said earlier. In that passage, the disciples, and they were here for this, so they see all this and they come to Jesus and they say, that blind man, who sinned? I mean, just like the lame man, he sinned, and that's what happened to him. But what about this blind guy? Who sinned, him or his parents? What does Jesus say? Neither, but it was so that the glory of God might be revealed. And if we read the book of Job, we know that there are plenty of people who suffer unrighteously, that it's not their fault that the suffering comes upon them. It's not their fault that the suffering descends on them, that there is not a clear connection between their sin and their suffering. Further, if you read the the Psalms, you know that oftentimes the, the ungodly don't suffer. 
So yes, this passage would teach us that there is a connection between, between our sin and suffering, but not in every circumstance. And I would just tell you pastorally, when you're in the thick of it, when you're at the bottom of the valley, when you cannot see the sun, it is nearly impossible to be able to discern, did my sin lead to this suffering? And even in the best of times, even when you're looking back on that, you're not always able to know what's the relationship between these things. And so if you are suffering, I think just about one of the most unhelpful questions you can ask yourself is, did I cause this by my sin? I just don't know that there's always a clear answer to that question. But here's what I can tell you. There is a clear question every single time. What is God trying to teach me through this suffering? What is God trying to teach me? Maybe I don't know exactly the relationship. I don't know that this caused this. But I can be confident that God is trying to teach me something through suffering. The book of Romans tells us that he works all things for the good of those who love him. And so if you were to come to me and you were to explain suffering in your life and you'd say, well, am I like the cripple at the pool or am I like the blind man? I would tell you, I don't know. But I know God is trying to teach you something. And I know, I just know that it's often in those times that Jesus comes to us and says, do you want to be healed? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent your son to heal us from our diseases. Not only or merely, or even sometimes at all, of our physical diseases, but you came to send your son to die on the cross for our sins, to remove the weight of our sin, to remove our guilt. So, Father, I, I thank you that you've come to send your son to die on the cross in our place for our sins. Thank you that you've come to send your son to walk us out of those sins into holiness. Father, I know the weight of this passage can bear in different ways on different people. I know that maybe there are some here who are going through the thick of it. They can't see light and everything is gloomy and there's no seems like there's no hope. Father, I, I thank you that, and I know that for some of us that they are here and there is a sin in their life. There is something habitual and perpetual in their life that they're wrestling with and struggling with. And Father, I know that maybe there are some here who don't know you, who your son has come to them this morning and said, do you want to be healed? And they want to say yes. Father, I trust that for all of us who are here, I trust that for all of us who are here, you have us here on purpose this morning. And I pray that your word would not go out void, but that you would accomplish the purpose for which you have it. And I pray that you would help us to be open to all that you've said. And so we thank you for all of that and all the many things that you do in our life. We thank you for your great love which is vast as the ocean, through which we can be cleansed. So I pray that you would use this word to further your kingdom in our hearts and in our lives this week. 
in the name of your Son, our great Savior, that we pray. Amen.